Uh, Romans 2, verses 12 to 29. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets, through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know this will, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You, then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Thank you, Hoai, very much. Great way to celebrate your birthday, reading God's word to God's people. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray together as we start. God of peace, God of light, God of life, as we pray for peace. So we pray that your light would shine and that it would bring life to us now as we look at these, your words, together, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last couple of months in the Tuckwell household, one of the highlights has been the Great British Bake Off. I don't know if you've been following. Obviously now there's no Mel and Sue and uh, Mary. It's not quite so great anymore, so perhaps just the British Bake Off. But um, it's lots of fun. And if you're a fan you'll know the format. If you're not a fan, it's not all that complicated. Um, One of the challenges each week is called the technical challenge. And with the technical challenge, the uh, contestants, who are trying to prove what great bakers they are, uh, they turn up to the tent 
not knowing what it is that they're going to have to cook that morning. And uh, they get given the thing they've got to cook, and they get, get a sort of very sparse recipe, missing some key details. It really is um, quite literally a recipe for disaster. Well, um, week five was Puddings Week. Puddings Week was one of my uh, favorite weeks, that won't surprise you. And the technical challenge on Puddings Week was baking a molten chocolate pudding in an hour from scratch. This wasn't sort of my kind of baking where you pierce the foil, put it in the microwave for two minutes, and, and job done. This, this was the real deal. And one of the contestants, James, banker James, here he is, and when, he, when he heard the challenge, when it got announced that morning, he was so smug. He said, molten chocolate puddings. Huh. I, uh, I read the recipe for those just last night. And so the rest of the contestants, there they are in the tent. They're, they're panicking, no, no idea how much flour to add. No, not a clue how long to bake these things for. But James is there. He, he's smiling to himself. And every now and then, he, he would sort of turn to the camera and quote the recipe. Say, I've got to beat the eggs with the sugar mixed in. And then melt the chocolate and very carefully fold it into the eggs. Eight minutes is all they need. Eight minutes, 180 degrees. That's all they need. And the other contestants in the tent, they start to get a whiff of the fact that James knows what he's doing. In fact, James, James has read the recipe. That's so unfair. He's done one of these before. Uh, and they were just left sort of trying to guess whatever felt right to them. James had the recipe. None of the rest of them did. But if you watched week five of the Great British Bake Off, you'll, you'll know what happened. Because the moment came when, after eight minutes, 180 degrees, James very carefully, very proudly, took his molten chocolate puddings out of the oven, put them on the side, and the judges broke in. And as uh, Paul Hollywood, one of the judges, as, as he cut into James's puddings, he said, James, these are raw inside, t- totally undercooked. And poor James, he didn't get the Paul Hollywood handshake. That is what the contestants on the Great British Bake Off crave. The handshake that says, that was perfect. But not for James. No, James had to pack his bags and head home. He was booted off the show that week. James had the recipe. He was so confident that he knew what he was doing. But no Hollywood handshake. Well, keep James in mind as we look at these verses in Romans chapter 2, because James's smug bake-off blunder gives us a bit of a sense of the smug religious blunder that Paul is warning of here. Romans chapter 2 presents us with two groups of people. Have a look down, Romans 2, verse 12. It's a key verse in the chapter. We looked at um, this verse last week as well. Uh, Romans 2, verse 12, where we read, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Do you hear those two groups? There are those who are apart from the law. That is the Gentiles. Those who didn't have the law that God gave to Moses. But then there are also those who are under the law. That is the Jewish people. Those to whom God had revealed his moral law law through Moses. Two groups. Two groups, but with one goal. Verse 13, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. 
Just one goal. And the goal is to be declared righteous. It's the great heavenly handshake which says, you are perfect in my sight. You have obeyed my law perfectly. That's the goal here, righteousness. And you hear that and you're left thinking, well, hang on a sec. The goal is righteousness, perfect obedience to the law. That's fine for the the group who have got the law, but there's this group here, the Gentiles, they haven't got the law. Isn't that just really unfair? Like the other Bake Off contestants. James has got the recipe. He's heard the recipe. He's read it. It's not fair. But listen to verse 14. This is the point Paul has been making throughout the first two chapters of uh, his letter. Verse 14, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. Paul is very simply saying here, you know how to bake. You know how to bake. You, you don't need a detailed recipe. Molten chocolate pudding, you, you know it's going to need flour and eggs and sugar and chocolate. You know that. And you say, in the same way, you and I have an inherent sense of right and wrong. Maybe you're here this morning and um, you wouldn't call yourself a, a Christian believer. But my guess is you still think human rights are a good thing. Let me ask you, why is that? Well, why do you think human rights are a good thing? As a Christian believer, I think I would say they're a good thing because God in his word tells me that every human being is made in his image and so has inherent value, great worth. But actually, I don't think this is too controversial. We don't need God's word to tell us that. You might not have read a single page of the Bible, but you still know human rights are a good thing. Because that truth, God's truth, is burnt into who we are. That is verse 15. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. Now this week in my office, I was sitting at my desk, and there was this little fly buzzing around my laptop screen. I swatted it, got it first time, fell down. He, he fell down dead on the desk. I, I presume it was a he. I didn't check whether it was a he or she, actually. Um, That was okay. Now, I didn't feel too guilty about that moment. You're not going to lock me up for that moment. But if in my office this week there was a little child buzzing around, distracting me, and I swatted, fell down dead, that's a problem, isn't it? We understand that that is wrong. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness. Now, we mustn't get confused. It's not that we know right and wrong perfectly. Actually, Paul was very clear on that in chapter 1. We are truth suppressors. We are truth distorters. We skew God's moral framework. But even with our skewed moral framework, Andrew helped us see this last week, our consciences condemn us. None of us have got a clear conscience about the way we live our lives. I don't. I'm pretty sure none of you do either. All of us, if we, if we look at our lives, if we look back at things we've done and things we haven't done, 
we'll all condemn ourselves, even within our own skewed moral framework. I don't actually need God's law to condemn me. When you stand before the Creator God on Judgment Day, you won't be able to say to him, well, God, Exodus, Deuteronomy, found them pretty hard going. Um, if I'm honest, I didn't get as far as the Sermon on the Mount, so I never really read that. Look, I, I didn't know how you wanted me to live. Now, our, our consciences tell us otherwise. That is the first half of verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Ignorance is no excuse because we do know. I guess you could call that a smug agnostic blunder. Uh, But actually in our verses this morning, Paul is focusing on the second half of verse 12 where he declares all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And here we see the smug religious blunder. Let me read from verse 17 again. But um, this isn't an anti-Semitic rant from Paul. Don't mishear him. Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. In fact, by the time we get to verse 29, Paul's going to be telling us that the goal for each of us is actually to be truly Jewish. It's not anti-Semitic. He's warning against hollow religion. Follow with me from verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now Paul's speaking to the Jews here. He's speaking to those who are under the law. And he's making just one point. He's saying, having the truth isn't enough. Having the truth isn't enough. Just as we bake off James, having the recipe wasn't enough. Having the truth isn't enough. The Jewish people here, they had the law. They, they knew what was true. They were so pleased with themselves. We, we are the ones with God's law. He gave it to us. We've got it. And, and so they thought they were the truth police because God had given them the law. That, that's, that's verse 19 here. If you're convinced you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish a teacher of little children, because you have the law in the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They they thought it was their job to police the truth. But how verse 21 must have stung them. It's the moment the, the molten chocolate pudding is broken into. Verse 21, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you hear that? Do you not teach yourself? He's saying... Having the truth isn't enough because you're not living it out. And so as he, he quotes the law to them in, in verse 22, he's saying, really, how are you, how are you doing on this? How, how has the Israelite nation done on this? Are you really as blameless as you think? Then verse 23, you who boast in the law 
that you dishonor God by breaking the law. Do you hear the rhetoric here? They're challenging words for us. They're particularly challenging words for a, a church like Christchurch. Because we like to be a church that cares about truth. We tell ourselves we work very hard to, to teach truth, to guard truth. God has wonderfully given us his word. What a joy to have this truth. But do you hear the challenge? That having truth isn't enough. And how awful to be a church that would be so smug about having truth that we fail to live out that truth. And so we fail to commend Jesus Christ. That's God's verdict in verse 24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's saying, your religious smugness, it stinks. Hypocrisy stinks. It's a massive turnoff to those who don't know him. I really fear that for us. I fear that for myself. That, that I could be someone who so loves the fact that I have the truth, but that I, I forget to live out the truth. I was trying to think where in life this might play out. There'll be lots of situations. You might be thinking of them in your own context. I was... Um, Think of a situation where um, perhaps there's someone who, a Christian brother or sister, and um, they've wandered off track. They, they've erred somewhere, wandered from the truth. And there's a need to correct them. And there is a need to correct them. You know, I, I want to do that. But it's so easy to step into that situation wanting to correct them because in some way they have offended me the sort of sense of how dare you wander from the truth. Outrageous. As though I am the truth police and I have no need of correction myself. When I do that, it's a speaking out of care for myself. My theological crossness rather than a care for them. Rather than a, a genuine and Christ-shaped love. We need to ask ourselves, is that us? Certainly me at times. And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't correct each other. We must do that. But it's an attitude. It's an attitude that, that either says, well, I'm over the truth. My job is to guard and protect the truth. Or I'm under the truth. And I need to humbly let it guard and protect me. Keeping my soul safe for eternity. Paul pushes the point further in verse 25. Um, have a look down with me. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. So he's been saying having the truth isn't enough. But this goes further. This is, this is circumcision. The Jews were told to do it as, as part of the Old Testament law, and they were doing it. Circumcision was a, a picture of someone who was committed to live under the law, to live under the blessings of God's promise. But 
Paul makes it crystal clear. He's saying, no, acting out the truth isn't enough. Circumcision alone wasn't enough. It was just a picture of obedience to the law. You still had to obey. I remember many years ago, I was a church warden here, and it was a baptism. I can still remember where I was sitting, actually. I was sitting about there, and Steve was doing the baptism here. And um, he'd done the sort of water bit with the baby, and he, he was just getting to the point where, oh, sign with the sign of the cross. And um, he didn't do it. He, he completely missed the sign of the sign of the cross. And suddenly, panicked church warden, the vicar's done it wrong. Is this even a genuine baptism? What are we going to do? And uh, got to the moment where the children headed downstairs, so there was a bit of a gap. And I came scaring up to him, Steve, Steve, you didn't do that sort of sign with the sign of the cross bit. Now, even to this day, I've no idea if this was a very accomplished bluff or not. Um, he swears it isn't. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said, no, John, I did it on purpose. It's not magic. It's a picture of the promise. What matters is not that this child has a cross drawn on their head, but that this child clings to the cross in their heart. That's right, isn't it? Bit of water, cross drawn on our heads, eating some bread and some wine, coming to church each week, being part of a small group, coming to the monthly prayer meetings. They are, they're all good things. They're all helpful things in the Christian faith. But none of those things, in and of themselves, will keep us safe on Judgment Day, on the day when each one of us stands before our Creator God, with all our, our thoughts and our deeds laid bare before him. He'll see them all. And we're told he will judge us according to our deeds. And on that day, it's not having the truth that matters. It's not acting out the truth that matters. Just acting out the signs of the promise. Thinking that is the smug religious blunder. The only thing that matters on that day is faith in that promise. And uh, that's where we'll finish. Remember the um, Paul Hollywood handshake that every Bake Off contestant longs for. The, the, the moment which says that was perfect. That molten chocolate pudding was absolutely perfect. Well, for you and me, this is far, far better. Have a look again at the, the final verses of our passage. Verse 28. Follow with me. A, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, is that not eye-poppingly amazing? Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This person's not, not seeking the praise of those around them because they know the praise of God. The creator God, the one, the one who spoke and the universe came into being. The one who knows every detail of each of our lives. How amazing is it to be, to be praised by him? And how do we get that praise? We've seen it. it's not enough to have the truth or to act out the truth. What matters is that 
we live lives which perfectly, perfectly in every way, are obedient to that truth. That was verse 13. It's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Perfect in every way. And when we, when we hear that, when we get that, our hearts are crushed, aren't they? Here's the praise we're longing for, and what does he demand? He, he demands perfection all of the time. When I was um, younger, I used to play darts quite a bit, and um, I was playing a darts match once, and um, only once I threw 180. Now, if you're playing darts, that's quite good. Three darts, 180. The next three darts, I scored three with. It was quite a moment. And actually, that is my life. As soon as, as soon as it looks like it's going well, doing quite well with this keeping the law thing, then I flunk it. How can I ever receive praise from a creator God who in his holy perfection demands perfection? How can it happen? Verse 29. Now, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What is being spoken of here is new life, regeneration. The old sinful, wicked life being, being taken away and a new life coming in. It's what God promises people through the prophet Ezekiel, 600 years before Jesus walked on the earth, um, he promised these words. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That is the promise here. It's a wonderful promise. The Spirit coming and bringing life. It's the Spirit that is promised to all those who trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we trust, the Spirit comes and the Spirit brings life because the old life is gone. And it's not that sin completely disappears in your life. Don't expect that or you'll be disappointed. It is that the sinful life is no longer really you. It, it no longer defines you. You are defined by a new life, by Christ's life. And wonderfully, extraordinarily, you might have heard this truth a thousand times, but marvel at it again. Jesus, he was the one the only one who didn't just have the truth or didn't just act out the truth, but he lived out that truth perfectly. N not a hint of hypocrisy in him. Uh, and as we trust in him, as we trust in his death on our behalf, his resurrection, which proves the death, the, the grip of sin and death is defeated. As we trust in him, his life becomes our life. His Spirit comes and lives in us and the Spirit urges us to live for Jesus, follow God's way. But more than that, 
The Spirit equips us. He equips us to live out the truth. Not perfectly. Please don't misunderstand this morning or else we'll be back to the smug religious blunder of thinking we're, we're doing it perfectly. You and I are not perfect. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, day by day, we are learning to live a life of obedience. We're fighting sin, seeking to put it to death. But all the time we're doing that firm in the confidence that our creator God sees us as perfect. Because as he looks at all those who are trusting in his son, he sees the spirit of Jesus in us. That is, that is so much better than a Paul Hollywood handshake. This is eternity. This is the destiny of all those who trust in Jesus. Why don't we pray together? God, our Father, your word causes us to despair and rejoice. We pray for your forgiveness, for our hypocrisy, for our our seeking praise from those around us by pretending to be that which we are not and by ignoring your praise that comes through faith in your Son. How we praise you for him, for his blood that was shed to bring our forgiveness by his perfect life and perfect death. Father, we pray that you would help us to live as people of faith, trusting in his righteousness, delighting in it. Please don't ever let these truths be boring truths to us. Amaze us with them and help us to live empowered by his spirit to his praise and his glory. Amen.